The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. Become a member and support this podcast. Go to numismatics.org slash membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. to another episode of the Planchet Podcast. I am your host, uh, Andrew Reinhardt from the American Numismatic Society. And my guest today is Christopher R. McDowell, who is a lifelong numismatist and a recognized expert in the area of colonial coinages and metals. He's the author of Abel Buell and the History of the Connecticut and Fujio Coinages, along with several award-winning articles on American colonial coins and metals. An ANS fellow, Chris is also the editor of the prestigious Journal of Early American Numismatics, and he is also the president of the Colonial Coin Collectors Club, or C4. His newest book is titled The Early Betts Metal Companion, Metals of America's Discovery and Colonization from 1492 to 1737, published by the American Numismatic Society in 2022. And the idea for the book grew from Chris's interest in Charles Willis Betts and American colonial history and metals. A graduate of Marshall University and West Virginia University College of Law, Chris served as an officer in the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General Corps and was stationed in Korea, Germany, Bosnia, and Kansas, and he currently practices law in Cincinnati, Ohio. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for uh, joining us on the Planchet Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Andrew. Sure. And uh, first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on this beautiful new book, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it. Yes, this, this book follows the path of uh, C. Willis Betts, a book on American metals. This is volume one of what uh, I hope is going to be a three-volume set. And this book covers the first two chapters of Betts's book, which covers the period of time from 1492 to approximately 1737, and the metals that are encompassed within that time frame that relate to uh, America or the Americas, so North and South America. Okay, you mentioned C. Willis Betts. So who was C. Willis Betts and uh, what drew you to him? C. C. Willis Betts is a, is a pretty interesting person and he's a very important in the history of numismatics, American numismatics. He was a graduate of Yale College, uh, then he became an attorney, graduated from Columbia University where he got his law degree and then he went back to Yale and got a master's uh, degree. Uh, while he was a, a boy, uh, Betts developed an interest in coinage. Uh, he, he was a, a sickly child and the doctor recommended that he walk around, uh, if nothing else, uh, to sort of strengthen, strengthen himself. And uh, what, he, what Betts would do is he would walk around New Haven, Connecticut and go to local stores and ask them if he could see their bucket of change. Every At that time, in the 1760s, uh, every store kept 
change uh, that they couldn't spend, that is change that was out of date, uh, tokens and things like that that they had accepted. And uh, bets would look through these buckets and then take uh, or buy from the merchants those things that he was interested in. And from that, he developed an interest in engraving metals himself. And so as a, as a boy of about 14 and 15, he began engraving metals and he, he created fantasy metals. Uh, that is, he wasn't copying things that actually existed, but making fantasies. Uh, and he did this through a complicated process that he had. Uh, later on, uh, after Betts died, uh, a few of these fantasies that Betts never created in order to fool people actually began to fool some collectors who thought they were authentic. Uh, and so there's a really rich history of these. So what we're talking about and what my book is about is what's called Betts Metals, which are metals that are in Betts' book. But there are literally some Betts Metals, that is, metals that he made himself. And these are uh, collected by people in, in their own right. Uh, then as Betts grew older, he was very wealthy. His family was very wealthy. And he would travel to Europe. Uh, he collected furniture. And he did other things like that. But he also began to collect coins and metals. And uh, he started writing a book uh, on metals. And uh, he, he got very far into the book, into his manuscript, when he died suddenly of pneumonia at the age of 42. And when he died, his brother uh, found the manuscript and uh, wanted to finish his manuscript for his brother. Uh, but his brother, Frederick, wasn't able to finish the book uh, by himself. And so he got Lyman Lowe and William Marvin, two American uh, coin experts, to help finish the book. It took him seven years. Uh, but then uh, they were finally able to finish the book. And what Betts's book is on, uh, when we talk about Betts Metals, uh, what that book is on is it's about metals that have a connection to American history. And so what it is, is it's the story of America told through metals from 1492 through the end uh, of the American Revolutionary War. And what Betts set out to do, what his vision was, uh, was to tell the sort of the, the story uh, through the sequence of metals, contemporary metals. And Betts's book is called an illustrated book of contemporary metals. However, there are very few actual illustrations in his book. Uh, and so what I have done, I believe, uh, is helped Betts finish the vision that he had, which is to tell the history of America through the illustration of metals. And so I have been able to acquire uh, illustrations, examples of almost every metal uh, in his book and illustrate it. So my book actually has the illustrations that Betts' book uh, lacked. I, I like to think that had Betts lived, he would have actually better illustrated his book. And so what I've been able to do is finish what Betts, I believe, set out to do. That was one of the really appealing things about the book, I thought, was just how heavily illustrated it actually was. And when you compare that to, to Betts' original, you really realized his vision for this. Um, what else do you have in, in, in the book itself? I, I know that it, you know, it goes from 14, volume one goes from 1492 to 1737. And so, you know, we, we've got, we've got the metals now, are, 
are these all of the medals that Betts had in his book? And what kind of text accompanies the images here? Yeah, well, one of the things that I did that, that Betts did not do, he didn't really attempt to do, which is really to flush out the medals. Most of Betts uh, in his book, what he does is he gives a description of the medal, the obverse and the reverse, um, and, and that's about it. And, and sometimes on occasion, there is an illustration. Whereas what I have done is have an illustration of every medal that I was uh, able to find an illustration of, an example of. It's rather surprising that when you get into Bet's book, there's some medals that actually don't exist. Um, but if a medal does exist, uh, I've, I've found an illustration of it. As Betts did, I described the obverse and the reverse. And then I do something that Betts really didn't get into, uh, which is give the weight of the metal uh, and also give the dimensions of the metal, which is important. Betts did try to set forth the metal with a T uh, of each metal. So if it, I say whether it's in copper, brass, silver, gold, uh, and then I give a history of that metal. That is what what is this medal of? What's the historical event that it commemorates? And, and describe the history that surrounds the medal. Uh, and then at the end, uh, I give pricing uh, for each medal uh, that has pricing available for it. Some medals uh, have never really sold, so I, there's no pricing available. But where there's pricing available, particularly um, recent pricing, uh, I provide the pricing for the metal. So I hope that in that way I've captured everything uh, that a collector wanted. I, I thought through, you know, what would I as a collector of a metal want? So if you have a metal in your hand, you want to know, well, what's this image on it? What does this capture? What's it commemorate? Uh, what's it worth? Um, and, uh, and so I put everything in there that I ever wanted uh, a book to have about a metal. Uh, so that, that's what is in my book. Each medal that Betts lists in chapter one and chapter two of his book, uh, I list and illustrate. Well, you, you, you raise an interesting point about uh, collecting and collectors, and, and I wanted to you know, ask two questions about this. Uh, first of all, with about Betts himself uh, as a collector, and I was curious, you know, first of all, what kind of medals was Betts collecting for himself that he would ultimately illustrate in this book? Was it just, you know, a bunch of everything or did he collect, you know, certain kinds of things? Uh, I know that you have a nice long section in there about the John Law medals, for example. And then secondly, uh, going forward to 2022 is uh, who are collecting, who are the people collecting these medals now? And what's that community like and how might one get their start if they wanted to start building their own Betts medal collection? That is a what we would call in the law a compound question. So I'll try <laughs> <Yes>. to break. <laughs> well, you're you're the expert, so yeah, <laughs> go ahead and break it down. I'll try. I'll 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 try to break it down first. Uh, uh, what what did Betts collect? Yeah. Uh, Betts was a consummate collector. Uh, you know, he had a job as an attorney, and he worked with his brother in the area of patent law in um, in Boston. Uh, but uh, he he really didn't have, as far as I can tell, uh, much of a uh, an interest in the law. His main interest was just in living life and enjoying things. And so, as I said, he would travel to Europe and he would buy a lot of furniture. He was just a, a, a collector of things. 
and he would bring these this furniture back to America, so much so that his, he and his brother were one of the original developers of the Hamptons. Uh, and as it turns out, what Betts was would do is he would actually build houses to put his furniture in because he had so <laughs> much furniture. Uh, and he would also collect metals, and he would collect everything. He collected coins and metals. Um, there really um, doesn't seem to be much of a limit to what he would collect. As far as I can tell, uh, he didn't collect many ancients. Uh, that was not uh, in his area, in his wheelhouse. He collected mostly things associated with uh, America in one way or, or another. When he died... His collection was given to Yale University, which still houses um, his collection. One of the things that I was able to do in my research was really ferret out a lot of the things that are within Yale's collection, things that, in some instances, Yale didn't even know that they had. Uh, so it, it's the answer to that question is Betts collected uh, everything, everything associated uh, with America. He he had, as it turned out, uh, he had a lot of medals that uh, I don't think anybody even knew that he had, and coins as well. So that's one of the things. The, the, the people who collect these medals, these early medals in particular, are very Eurocentric. Uh, that, that is, these are uh, the first two chapters of Betts contains medals that were made in Europe. These, obviously, there's not a lot of medals being made uh, there's no medals being made in America in the 15th and 16th uh, or 17th century. Uh, these were medals being made in Europe, and these were medals that were made about the Americas. One of the, the first things that, you know, I, sort of that interested me, that Betts realized, was there is no medal related to the discovery of America. That is, Christopher Columbus founded America. And, one of the, and so it becomes a realization of what is a contemporary medal, because when Columbus founded uh, or discovered America, at that time it was not a big event in Europe. Uh, and so nobody commemorated it. It's not, it wasn't like the moon landing. Right, um, right. Later on, as Spain exploited the, the New World and became extraordinarily rich through the mines of South and Central America, uh, people began to notice, well, you know, this discovery of America was a pretty big event. Uh, but by that time, it was several hundred years later. Uh, and so one of the realizations that I came to was there's really no contemporary discovery of America medal. Uh, that really is a, is a later event because what Betts is focused on is contemporary medals, medals that people made at the time to commemorate or to honor or recognize an event that took place at the time. And so a lot of these medals, these early medals, are European. They're Dutch, they're Spanish, they're French, and they're English. Uh, and so what we have initially are Spanish and Dutch medals. As the Spanish uh, begin to exploit the riches of the New World, and then they have a, a falling out with the Dutch, uh, and you have the 80 Years' War, and it really... The first chapter is really the fight between the Dutch and the Spanish um, and the medals that they created because the, uh, the Dutch in particular uh, were very good at making medals that were made for a propaganda purpose. 
so a lot of these metals are collected by Europeans because they're European in nature. Um, but some Americans collect these metals as well. There are many Americans who collect Betts metals across the board. So that's the, the general collecting community um, is European and American. So this is something that we share in common uh, with Europe. And if somebody wanted to start collecting uh, Betts metals for themselves to start building that collection, would that be relatively easy to do? Is it just get a copy of your book or, and get a copy of, of maybe <laughs> or a facsimile copy of Betts' original and then uh, you know, kind of choosing a section and then going from there? Are these things relatively easy to find, hard to find, kind of a mix? Yeah, the, the, it's it's a real mixed bag, Andrew. There There are some Betts metals that are fabulously expensive in the hundreds of thousands of dollar range uh, and extraordinarily rare, maybe one or two exist. Uh, but one of the surprises for me uh, is that there are some series that is relatively common and that the metals can be um, acquired in the couple of hundred dollar range. Uh, and there are many sort of hidden gems uh, within my book as it sets out the prices um, you can see the you can see what's sort of within your reach. Um, I think the thing that somebody would want to do is, you know, what aspect of American history are you interested in? What medals are you interested in? And and my my book kind of can give you an overview of all the different types of medals because, quite frankly, when I got into it, there were th some th some things that I didn't even know uh, exist. I'll give you a, for example, uh, Pete Hine um, is a person who I'd never heard of. And as it turned out, he's a very important historical figure uh, for the Dutch in particular. Uh, and I'd never heard of Pete Hine, uh, but now that I know about him, I don't think I'll ever forget him. And, and there are a lot of Dutch medals that surround uh, Pete Hine. I'll very briefly tell you the story of Pete Hine, uh, which is again, rather extraordinary. Uh, as, a, as a young boy, uh, Hein was captured by the Spanish and uh, sold as a slave to a galley. So he was a galley slave. And he was a galley slave for about seven years when he was able to, uh, I guess, acquire his freedom. And he went back to Holland and uh, immediately began to go out into the sea again when he was captured a second time by the Spanish and then made a, a, a slave for life. Uh, and he became, again, a galley slave uh, until he was fortunately able to uh, get his freedom. And when he got his freedom the second time, he became a, uh, a merchant and he became fabulously wealthy. Uh, and so the Dutch made him an officer in their Navy, although it wasn't owned by the Dutch, it was sort of a private Navy um, the, by the, uh, the Dutch, a Dutch company. And he began then to attack the Spanish. One of the things that you, you come to realize in this war between the Dutch and the Spanish is that it was everyone's dream in Europe to capture the Spanish silver fleet. Every year, weather dependent, the Spanish would uh, get together their galleons in Havana for a trip across the Atlantic to Seville. And this was this was all the silver that had been mined that year, or if it had piled up a couple of years worth of, of silver. And everyone always dreamed 
of capturing this Spanish silver fleet. Only one person ever did, and that was Pete Hine. Uh, Pete Hine surprised the Spanish fleet uh, outside Havana and captured the entire fleet. Uh, and this was just a tremendous amount of silver. Uh, it was able to fund the Dutch war effort against the Spanish for years. Uh, and so Pete Hine was a tremendous hero, as you can imagine, uh, back in Holland. And they made him the commander of their navy and, and so forth. Uh, within a year of this, they, they told him to go and clean out the pirates in the English Channel, which were harassing uh, the Dutch merchant fleet. And while he was doing that, he was attacking the city of Dunkirk. Uh, he was killed in action. And there was just a tremendous period of mourning uh, in Holland uh, upon his death. And lots and lots of medals uh, were made. Some of the medals were actually made from the silver that Pete Hine captured from the Spanish fleet. Uh, and there's lots of good drinking songs that go along with Pete Hine. But even to this day, uh, when, the, uh, when the Dutch are giving it to the Spanish in a, in a soccer game, the, the Dutch people will start to sing this song <laughs> about Pete Hine and how he basically bested the Spaniards and took all their silver. Uh, so that's, that's a whole series of medals that I had never even heard of and a man that I had never heard of. Uh, and the, the, the medals are really wonderful. The, they, they depict his capture of the Spanish galleons. They show uh, him in action. And uh, these are just wonderful, wonderful medals uh, and something that I never would have come across uh, except, you know, for my study of the, of the bet, early bets medals. And so when I go through this, I divided these into sort of series, and that is one series of medals. So you could go out and you could collect Pete Hine medals. Um, and uh, that would be a, a series of medals. But there are other, you know, wonderful series as well. The, the French medals in particular are less expensive. Uh, uh, many of them are, are in brass or copper. As a general rule, um, silver medals are more expensive than medals uh, in other uh, metal with a T uh, other than gold. Uh, and so those are, you can look at some of those uh, French medals for their acquisition. Again, this is a war between all these European nations and the Dutch, and the French eventually get into the action and they want to take some Caribbean islands. And when they do, they make medals to commemorate the event. So those medals you can see are very uh, affordable. And so a person might want to collect those as well. A very long-winded answer to your very simple question. <laughs> no, that's fine. One, one of the beautiful things about about numismatics uh, is, is you know, not just the fact that these are you know, artifacts that are documenting history, but the fact that there are so many just colorful, um, sometimes outrageous, often heroic personalities, uh, either behind the coins or or in medals or uh, depicted on them. We'll be right back after a word from the ANS. The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. The best way to support this podcast is join as a member. Since 1858, we have cultivated a community of scholars, artists, collectors, and amateur enthusiasts interested in numismatics and the tangible history these objects describe. Go to numismatics.org membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. 
I'm, I'm wondering if, if there are any other kinds of surprises like this that you discovered in your research for this particular book. There are two, I should say, medals that I, that I thought were of great historical significance. The first I'll talk about is directly tied uh, to America, and that is uh, it's one of the early Betts medals that uh, is closely tied to America. Some of these early Betts medals are a little loosely tied to America. But this, this medal deals with the Concepcion, uh, a large um, Spanish silver galleon it was the super tanker of its day. It was made for one purpose, and that was to haul the riches of America, of the Americas, to Spain. Uh, and this Concepcion had a crew of uh, approximately 600 men. Uh, and it left out of Havana uh, and immediately ran into a hurricane and returned to Havana. It was able to limp back into the harbor with its hull leaking. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, uh, it set out again. Uh, and as luck would have it, or bad luck would have it, it hit a second oh, no. uh, hurricane and uh, was was separated from the rest of the fleet. Uh, and it was filled, you know, to the brim with silver uh, because this was one of the years in which uh, they had not been able to send the, the silver fleet for a couple of years. And so uh, it, it was particularly full of silver. And the captain decided that they would not be able to make it to Spain. And so he, he set a course for Puerto Rico, or at least he thought he set a course for Puerto Rico. At that time, the captain of the ship did not navigate the ship. There were pilots. And on big Spanish galleons of this size, there were two pilots. And the pilots uh, set the course, and the captain could not overrule the pilots once they set a course. And so the pilots set a course for Puerto Rico and the captain told the pilots, I don't think that that is an accurate course. And the pilots said, well, we checked it and it's, it's accurate, we're going into Puerto Rico. And he argued with them and so forth, but he could not countermand uh, their navigational course. So the captain ordered a bowl of water brought up to the, to the top of the ship and he washed his hands in the water and he said, I'll wash my hands of this whole thing. Uh, this course is wrong. Uh, and as it turned out, the captain was right. They weren't heading to uh, Puerto Rico. They were heading close to the island of Hispaniola and to the uh, rocky outcrops and shoals around that. And they careened through these uh, coral reefs and shoals uh, and tore a huge hole in the hull and came to rest uh, on one of these outcroppings. Well, there was one longboat on the ship, and they decided that the officers would get in the longboat and go on to what they thought was Puerto Rico and send help back. So they stranded 500 men uh, on this outcropping. Well, the men realized, in all likelihood, nobody's ever going to come back to rescue us. And so they started to make whatever they could of the, the wood uh, to rescue themselves. And then some of them began to offload the silver from the ship onto this reef that they were on. It was about There were about three or four feet of water. And they unloaded so much silver that they were eventually able to make it out of the water and walk on a man-made island of silver uh, <laughs> in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so uh, then the, uh, after a couple of days, the ship sank. 
um, of the of the 500 crewmen, uh, only about 190 survived, including the captain and the two pilots. Uh, the two pilots disappeared into the jungles of Hispaniola, never to be seen again. The captain eventually makes it back to Spain, where he's, for lack of a better term, court-martialed. But he says, I'll wash my hands of this navigation. It was the pilots. And so he was able to keep his head. The, uh, the king of Spain, as you can imagine, was very eager to recover the silver. And so they, they searched and searched for the, uh, for the wreckage, and they couldn't find it because nobody knew where it was because only the pilots uh, supposedly knew where it was, and they had disappeared into the jungles of Hispaniola to save their heads. Well, word of this tremendous treasure reached Boston and an American there uh, named Phillips, uh, and he convinced the King of England to give him a couple of ships to go and try to find this Spanish silver fleet, or Spanish sunken ship, I should say, the, the um, Concepcion. And he searched for a year and a half, and he wasn't able to find it. Well, then a couple of years later, he returned back to England to try to convince the new king, which was James II, to give him more ships. Well, James wouldn't do it. Uh, and so he got a private group of people, of, of investors, and they raised a lot of money, and they, and they were able to get three ships. This time, rather suspiciously, they went right to the treasure. Uh, and they, they dove into the ocean. They were able to bring up all of this silver from the ocean floor. Uh, and when they returned to England, uh, the American was knighted. He became the first American-born uh, individual to become a knight, uh, an English knight. He was given the governorship of Massachusetts uh, as, a, as a reward as well. And medals were made, again, from the silver that was recovered from the Concepcion to commemorate the event. And these medals uh, you, can, you can buy. They, they show the men diving into the ocean to recover uh, the silver. So that is a, that's a just, I, I didn't know about that story. I didn't know about these medals. And uh, I found that to be a very uh, interesting medal. Uh, the other one uh, is the Scottish expedition to Panama. Uh, the Scots were late to get into the game of colonization. And so when they looked around the globe, the only place in the Americas that they could find when there, where there wasn't a colony was in the Isthmus of Panama. Well, the reason why is because it was an inhospitable jungle and, and the and the Scots set up a, a colony uh, there, and it was a, a, a real failure. It, it, it was the hope and dream of the Scottish people that they would be able to do this. They put their fortunes into it. Uh, when, the, when the colony failed, it bankrupted Scotland, and eventually, as a result, led to the unification of Scotland with England, uh, because England uh, offered to basically bail Scotland out from its ill-fated venture in the Isthmus of, of Panama, uh, there was the leader of the expedition uh, was a very he heroic individual who fought off the Spaniards because, as it turns out, 
there was no area in the, in the Americas that wasn't uh, claimed by someone. Eventually, the Spanish came, and on top of all the disease and things these people suffered, uh, uh, beat them in battle. Um, but so they made a medal and gave it to uh, this individual, and that medal um, is uh, uh, is a medal that I didn't know about. I didn't know about the uh, Scots' efforts to colonize the Americas. So those are two two medals that sort of surprised me when you ask of you know what medals surprised you that you didn't know about. Well, that was that's two of them, uh, and uh, I think those are very historic medals. You know, quite frankly, almost all these medals in Beth's book are historically significant in one way or another. Yeah, I found it uncanny just to go through the, the, the pages and, and get all of this history. And a lot of it was new to me, and I think it's going to be uh, new to, to many of your readers as well. Um, one last question about numismatic personalities. And I, I want to get back to, to uh, C. Willis Betts for a moment. Um, how did you discover Betts? Uh, I mean, you know, he, he died relatively young at the age of 42 from pneumonia. Um, but uh, how did you discover him and what, 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 what drew you to, you know, to, his, to his collection and to his own personality? Many, many years ago, I purchased his book. Uh, I got a, an original uh, version of the book. Uh, and uh, at that time, it cost a couple of hundred dollars. People should know that if they want to get Betts's book, there's many reprints. You can get it if you try and you look at eBay long enough for about twenty or thirty dollars. You can get Betts's book, uh, and it sat on my shelf, uh, and uh, I never really thought about it or opened it. Uh, and then Betts was a person who I kept bumping up against. Um, he collected, uh, amongst his other things, Connecticut's, and uh, you know I've gone to Yale and looked at their collection and looked at his collection uh, of Connecticut's uh, and that are that are there at Yale. Uh, and so I bumped up against him that way. And then uh, the story of the, the medals that he made, um, I've seen those. And one of the things that anybody who collects coins long enough, what happens is you find other things that you pick up along the way. And along the way, I picked up a few medals. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got that book on my shelf, Betts's book. Uh, let me see if I can figure this metal out in his book. And so I uh, pulled the book down and, and tried to figure out the metals in his book. And I realized that there were a lot of shortcomings uh, with the book. Sort of kept that in the back of my mind and always thought, you know, of, of all the books uh, in numismatics, uh, it, it, is one of the most famous books, uh, and it has never been upgraded, never been updated. Uh, and and people talk all the time. Well, somebody should do an update of bets, uh, but nobody ever did. And so, um, eventually, I acquired more medals, tried to look them up in his book, and uh, thought, well, you know what? Uh, I'll just start it. Uh, and I had no idea uh, how difficult it would be when I set out. Uh, but that's how I sort of entered it. Uh, I just decided to start on, on a book on bets uh, and educate myself along the way. Uh, and I got to tell you, I'm very glad I did uh, because I've learned so much about history. I have a degree in history. Uh, and so I enjoy history. I had a professor in college who said that 
basically every man when he gets to be about 50 years old becomes a historian. <laughs> uh, and I fell into that category. Uh, and so I, I really enjoyed the history of the medals. And so um, it, it became sort of a, a, a love affair of mine to put together a book uh, that flushed out all these medals. Well, you, you mentioned history, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about your personal history with numismatics um, to take a break from the Betts book for a moment. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how you first became interested in coins, maybe what your first coin was and how you acquired it. My father was a paper boy, and uh, he uh, would receive you know, loose change from people to pay their paperboy you know, uh, debt. And uh, he collected pennies and put together a penny collection. And uh, I would look at, you know, the pennies that he had, the American cents, and uh, uh, they always sort of interested me. Uh, and I think that my path through numismatics follows the path of many people. That is, as, as a boy, I was exposed to it and became interested in coins. And then, uh, you know, as one gets older, you develop other interests, you know, uh, 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 girls, uh, for example, that uh, your money is spent on other things or you're raising a family. And, and so at some point along the way, you, you get to a situation where you have some disposable income. And uh, I became, first, I got into numismatics because I wanted to diversify my portfolio and have gold and silver in it. And so I began to buy gold and silver medals or coins, I should say. And then I sort of went from there. I was always in the coin store buying gold, which at that time was a fraction of what it is today. So it turned out to be a very good investment. Um, and so the coin store had other things. And so then I became interested in other things. And I got in, interested in uh, to colonial numismatics. Um, in, in part um, because I realized that I would never know as much as the coin dealers did about American coinage. Uh, but uh, the colonial coinage, which was still American, uh, many of them were, were rather clueless about. And so I thought, well, I could have an edge if I collected those things. And, and then I got interested in Connecticut um, coins, uh, that is a pre-federal coinage, and just began to collect Connecticut copper coins. Uh, and that's uh, how, I, how I really sort of got into it uh, and through that route. When you were uh, you know, in the army and you were you know, being stationed in, in Korea, Germany, Bosnia, um, were you, you know, co collecting uh, local coinage there too? Or, you know, picking up souvenirs or, or looking into the history of those countries where you were stationed? No, I, I wish I was. In hindsight, you know, I wish I was. You know, when I was in in Korea, we had more of a real world mission. Um, you know, you always collect loose change. Sure. And in Europe at that time, it was before the euro, uh, and so each each country had its own you know coinage. And so I would look at those things, you know, and I would go to the Louvre and uh, travel throughout um, Europe, but. Uh, I never really got into coins until um, I got out of the army. Uh, and now I need and would like to go back to Europe to revisit many of these places. And I think I have a greater appreciation for the history of things than I did uh, at the time. 
Uh, and so I guess that's a bit of a regret of mine. Um, but no, I didn't have that same interest uh, at that time. My interest, my full interest developed later. I have one last question for you. And uh, you're, if, if memory serves, you're, you're a criminal defense lawyer uh, practicing in Cincinnati. And, you know, I'm, I'm here I am thinking about crime and thinking about early numismatic history. And I know that there's some, you know, tales about uh, numismatic forgeries and counterfeiting. And it's, it's actually pretty exciting stuff, especially when you go down to go back to the uh, early American period. I'm wondering if you have any, any kind of favorite stories about numismatic crime from, uh, you know, the 18th century as the, the United States was becoming the United States. Yeah. It, as, as you know, counterfeiting was a, a, a a favorite pastime of a lot of people. Um, my, I guess uh, I, I would turn to the American Revolution. Uh, and during the American Revolution, uh, the, the British realized that one of the Achilles heels uh, for the Americans who were fighting against him was really finance. And so the British, for the first time sort of in history, uh, realized that one of the ways they could help break the backbone of the uh, of the rebellion against them was to counterfeit uh, American paper money. And the uh, British uh, had a ship in New York Harbor after they captured New York, obviously, uh, in which they um, did they had two printing presses uh, that they ran. They uh, the story goes uh, almost twenty four seven making counterfeit American a currency, and the uh, the British would put advertisements in New York newspapers, uh, stating that anybody who wanted um, large amounts of American counterfeit currency, which they were doing with extraordinary skill, all you needed to do was basically pay the price of the paper, and they would give you bulk uh, American uh, wow. counterfeit American <laughs> currency. Uh, uh, and so to encourage people to go out and spread these counterfeits uh, in order to, to cause the Americans to have less trust and confidence in their own currency uh, and, and, and therefore in their own government. Uh, and, so, and, and it was a relatively successful campaign. Um, and the Americans had to recall some of their notes uh, because they were so heavily counterfeited, not just by the British. Other people got into the act, uh, but the British actively encouraged it. Uh, and one of the ironies of history is that during World War II, the Nazis did the same thing uh, to the British. In fact, at one point, the Nazis had made so much fake British currency that they considered flying bombers over London and not dropping bombs, but dropping money <laughs> oh uh, to, <laughs> and so turnabout was fair play. Uh, and so that's one of my sort of favorite stories is, is because it, it ties directly into the American Revolution and to, uh, to sort of our war effort. And you can collect um, the British counterfeits uh, along with the American counterfeit notes. And so one of the things that's sometimes fun to do is to get, um, the real note and then get the counterfeit notes uh, and try to determine, you know, what are the tells between the two um, and, and to try to discern what the differences are and which is real and which is fake uh, and build a little collection of notes um, doing that. 
Wow. Uh, I, I'm sure that, that folks who want to visit the American Numismatic Society will probably be able to pick out you know, some counterfeit bills and compare them against the original currency. And, and uh, I think that's an excellent idea for summer seminar students to do as well. Um, uh, for real, uh, <laughs> Chris, this has been a delightful conversation. I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with us today on the planchet. And, uh, I do hope that listeners will go out and buy a copy of your book because it was really interesting, not just from a collecting perspective, but also, uh, for the history, uh, behind these medals that were part of Betts's original monograph. Thank you. Sure. Thanks a lot. <laughs>